today's reading. Our speaker today is Frank Kim, who is our youth pastor. He says he's a little nervous, but he, he doesn't have to be. He's good. I already, I already heard the message. It was good. First um, John chapter 4. Verses 18 to 21. If you don't already have a Bible, you can hopefully there'll be one sitting before you. First John chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. It's a message about fear and love. Verse 18, this is the word of God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has has uh, seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also Love his brother. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This is uh, a little nervous today um, because actually I grew up in this church um, since I was a little kid. And actually this was the ministry that I always looked up to. And so to speak in front of you guys is uh, my privilege. Um, And please just uh, bear with me if if I stutter, if I get a little nervous. But let's start off with the word of prayer. God, um, I thank you for this honor and this privilege, Lord, to uh, speak in front of this congregation, Lord. This congregation who has been so good to me, Lord, who has helped me to grow in my faith, Lord. And I pray, Lord, today that, um, um, that you will just use me. Use me to proclaim your truth and your gospel. Lord. Use me, Lord, to just... Um, Lord, make the gospel come out clear and true and may we just glorify you Lord Jesus Um, Lord bless this time in Jesus name I pray Amen alright so today our passage comes from 1st John and 1st John covers various topics themes and issues and one of the themes that 1st John emphasizes is love And to give you an idea of how much it's emphasized, it's actually roughly mentioned 45 times in the whole book. And there's only five chapters. So it's mentioned 45 times in five chapters. And even within this reference of love, there's another thing tied to it, and that is loving others. And that's roughly mentioned 13 times. And even in our passage today, in verse 18 through 21, love is mentioned nine times. And in conjunction with loving others, it's mentioned three times. So... An obvious point that John makes here in First John is that Christians are to love others. And in loving others, that also means being part of a community, which is something that has been a point of emphasis at our church, especially the last couple of months as Pastor Susung has preached. But this isn't just some Christian ideal. This is something that our world strives for. To be at a place where we can love one another. Right? We hear it in our music. Michael Jackson once wrote a song 
called We Are the World, you know, had Lionel Richie and all these other guys, right, in it. And at the end of the first verse, the lyrics end with, Love is all we need. I mean, the world wants it. We see it on TV shows. We see it on in movies. Everyone has a desire or need to be loved, to be accepted and to belong. Or, as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it, to have an assurance of affection. But I don't think affection does enough justice to what love is. To to be loved, to love, is more than affection. To put it another way, I think to love is to be embraced or to embrace and accept the person as a whole. And that includes a level of transparency, honesty, and a level of comfort. And a part of that love, then, is to be known to your innermost being. Even the part of you that you're scared to reveal to others. But you want others to understand and accept because it's part of your makeup. Now, I'm not trying to condone every ill-conceived action a, pers- a person you know, commits as, as that being epitome of love. But to take the good and take and also accept the bad in a person, to take their best and their worst. And we commonly see that with parents and children and hopefully husbands and wives. Right? My mom, right, say for example, has seen me at my worst behavior, has, see, has seen me just at my most selfishness. And although she does not condone that, she still loves me for me. Who wouldn't want a community like that? Who, wanted, who wouldn't want to have relationships like that amongst our peers? Where you can just be you. In all your quirks. And someone to just love you. And vice versa. Now there's a show that is a favorite of mine. And some of you guys have heard me yap about it a lot. Um, it's called Community. And it centers on seven characters who meet each other at a community college. And in this, amongst these seven characters, uh, they're basically a ragtag group of random people who you never think would associate with one another. One, you have a lady named Shirley, who's like a, a goody-two-shoes Christian. Actually, she can even go, like, fall under, like, Pharisee. Um, there is a girl named Britta, who is a wannabe hippie activist. There is Annie, the overachieving student who has such performance anxiety that you find out that when she was in high school, she was addicted to Adderall because she had to perform. There is Jeff, the sleazy ex-lawyer who is in community college and got because he got disbarred because they found out that he never actually graduated from college. There's Abed, the disconnected from reality student. So the only way he can actually connect things is through pop culture. You have a guy named Troy, who's simple-minded and also an ex-high school quarterback who has a lot of insecurities. And then there's Pierce, played by Chevy Chase, who is the prickly racist old man. 
And all of this, right? You have this dynamic, and you would think, okay, how do how do they get along? They shouldn't get along, right? And throughout all the episodes and through the seasons, there's only been two seasons so far. It's on its third, right? And so the last two seasons, you have all these episodes playing up the conflicts, right? Playing up these insecurities of each individual. And at the very end, and this is the most, and I love this show because. This is the most endearing thing about it, is that at the very end, even with all the crap that they go through, even with all the baggage that they kind of spew at each other, they always come back together, they reconcile, make up, and they actually become a tighter group. Even amongst their character flaws. Isn't this what we desire? Whether we're Christians or non-Christians, to be loved and to love? But what hinders us from having real deep relationships? What hinders us from being able to love as the show community describes it to be? Oftentimes, I think the, one of the biggest reasons, and it's very simple, is fear. Fear. In 1 John 4.18, right, it says... There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here, love and fear are represented as antithesis. That's how John portrays it. If you fear, then you don't know how to love. If you love, then there's no fear. And when he talks about fear, it's not just a simple fear like being scared of the dark, like for kids. Right? But here we're talking about a slavish fear, a fear that paralyzes, a fear that cowers so bad and wants to go into its safe place. A good analogy for this would be Moses and the Israelites. When Moses took Israel out of Egypt, they were at the Red Sea, and the Egyptians came by. And they're ready to take him right back or slaughter them. And the Israelites, I mean, you can understand, they're scared. Right? They're like, what's going on? We have the Red Sea. We have the Egyptians on one side, Red Sea on one side. What are we going to do? Moses, why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die? It would have been better for us to go back as slaves, to go back to Egypt. I mean, imagine that. You're free... And you're so scared that you want to go back and be a slave. This is the type of fear that John is talking about. And here in verse 18 and 19, this fear has to do with essentially punishment. And what John is referring to for punishment is a divine punishment from God. But he goes on to say, but if you understand that God loves you, then we don't have to fear that. And we can go on loving God. But in the same vein, I think it also applies to our relationship with others. See, that fear applies to our relationship with God, but I also think it applies to our relationship with others. Right. What causes us from being able to love others? It's a paralyzing fear of punishment. In this case, it's not so much divine punishment, but receiving punishment from others. Or to put it another way, judgment and rejection 
from others, which is a form of punishment. Right? Because deep down inside, no one ever wants to be rejected. I don't care how callous a person is or how tough a person may, uh, may, uh, may, may be, but no one is impervious to rejection. Even those whose jobs were, re- were rejection is a prerequisite don't want to deal with it. I recently read a piece about 50 Cent. Now, 50 Cent is a rapper right, who's kind of big, not anymore. Um, but when I, was in high sc- when I was a high school senior, he was really big. And in the music industry, I mean, you have, you've, you have to deal with rejection all the time. You know, albums get tra- trashed by critics, right? Or sometimes, you know, they're praised and, and whatnot. And so here's 50 Cent, right? And his backstory includes being shot nine times in the face, right? He was dropped by Columbia Records before he got famous. He joined Interscope and then he got famous. So before that, he was on Columbia Records, but he got dropped. And this is what he had to say about that time. He said, I had just signed to Columbia Records and they dropped me because of the shooting when he got shot t- nine times. I could deal with every bullet wound, but I can't take that. Imagine that. Here's a guy, riddled with bullets. And I'm sure it hurt a lot. And yet, even the pain of being rejected by his former record company hurt more than each and every single one of those nine shots to the face. That's exact, that's basically what he's saying. No one, no one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be judged. And you know, and that's just from a working relationship. An industry that churns out rejection constantly. How much more fearful is it than when you have to bear your soul to someone and bear all that you are about to them, all that you love? All your interests, all your dreams, your tics, all your quirks, your failures, your fears, your insecurities. And you're able to show and share the deep, deepest recesses of your soul and to leave it up to someone, to hold it in their palm. And they either accept you or crumple it all up and toss you aside like a piece of garbage. And when I think about it, it's quite scary to be judged and deemed unfit or unwanted. But that is all inherently a part of loving. It's all in part inherent, inherently part of loving others. C.S. Lewis has this quote. About, about this topic. I just want to read it for you guys. And then we'll break it down. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. I, I find that very funny, because I have some friends um, who have pets, and, you know, their dads were the ones who really loved their dogs. Right? 
but they passed away because you know, of old age. And they asked him, oh, do you want another dog? He said, no, because it hurt too much. He didn't want to go through that again. Right? Right? To, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. See this? I mean, he just words this so perfectly. Right? To love at all is to be vulnerable. I mean, it's so true. When people are loving one another, whether it's romantic or platonic, you have to be able to open yourselves up to each other. And essentially, you're, you're, you're essentially sticking your neck out and saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm kind of putting myself before you to embrace me or not. And you know what? There's an uncertainty there in building those relationships. Because you don't know when your heart may be wrong. And for some of us, we felt the bitter sting of being rejected, being judged. Or we felt the gut punch of being judged. You know that sinking feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach when your very existence or your very being is rendered, is rendered inconsequential? This is part of it. You can get wrung out. It's vulnerable. You're sticking your neck out there. And so what happens? You love, and this could happen. This quite possibly could happen. It may not, but the way I see it, most oftentimes, at least one time in your life, it will. But if you want to keep Make sure your heart is intact. And he says, you must give your heart to no one. And isn't that what we do when, it, when, we, when we're scared of being hurt, when we have been hurt, is to minimize the damage? To try to put up safety nets for our hearts to soften the blow when it comes to loving others? What does that look like? How do we keep from getting rejected? And that's the question. Okay, I've been hurt, or I don't want to get hurt. So how, how, do I, how do I sidestep this? You know, we build up walls up on our hearts. Instead of showing who we are, we scale back. Sometimes we politically correctify ourselves. Never revealing anything of ourselves in fear of someone judging us for how we think or how we act. Instead of really expressing what's on our minds or our hearts, we keep our conversations vanilla. Ultimately, so that we won't get hurt, you know, we keep our relationships casual. 
at an arm's distance. You know, there are certain aspects of our life that we do this with. I do this too. I shared this with my small group. They know. You know, when everyone's going around sharing prayer requests, everyone's talking about, oh, this, that, this, that. And when it comes to my turn, I tend to get very wordy. I tend to give you long discourses of how I'm doing, but I'm not really telling you anything, actually. I keep things vague. If there's a sin problem that I'm dealing with, I'll, I'll keep it very vague so that you may get it, but most likely not. Why? Because to be honest, I fear people. I fear how they would think about me. Even to the ones who I call brothers, even to the ones who I say are close. Yet, aren't many of our relationships like this? Merely casual, without substance, leaving us wanting for something deeper, more satisfying? At large, this is our society, fragmented by casual relationships because we fear being left out or we fear of being just plain hurt. The conversations just tend to be, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. How's work? Good. How's your kids? Good. And you do that for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Next thing you know, you really didn't talk about much. You really didn't get to know how they were really doing. And it ends there, barely scratching the surface. It's small talk without any oomph. This is the normal mode of operations. Not only outside of the church, but even inside. Actually, in the church, it's even more intense. Unfortunately, there are even more intensely judgmental eyes that can burn a hole right through your heart. And I've seen this amongst church people. When they feel like they're threatened, when they feel like there's no safe place, they start to clam up and you never get any words out of them. Or we're scared. We're scared to show who we are. And so instead of loving others or being loved by others, as C.S. Lewis says, we carefully round our life with hobbies and little luxuries, avoiding all entanglements. I've been there. Right? I don't know how to talk to a person, right? um, a stranger, and you know, I know I can totally try to get to know this person in earnest, but then I'll go, Hey, you watched the game last night? Oh, yeah, yeah, the game! Talk about it for an hour, and after that, okay, I know he likes so-and-so team, but I didn't, I didn't get to know really who he was or what he's all about because I was scared. And yet, we call this normal. We call this normal. This is 
natural for us. Isn't there something wrong here? How can, how did we get here? How can this be so normal? Because fear is such a powerful motivation to cause us not to love others. And if you let it go so far that it overwhelms you to the point where you don't even want to love others, C.S. Lewis has a pers- describes that person too. You lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Right? You say, hey, I don't want to get hurt. I'm not going to even try. I'm going to just take a step back. And you're just setting yourself up. We're setting ourselves up then to become hard-hearted. Unable, right? You think you're, we think we're protecting ourselves, but in actuality, you're just killing yourself. I know people like this, right? People who have been hurt so much that they're just too scared. Like, I don't want to deal with other people. They've hurt me. And all they do is become bitter, right? It breaks my heart to see that. But then how? How can we be a people then who won't and don't cower in fear? How can we be people who who love others? How can we overcome the fear of, of rejection? The fear of being judged? For one thing, we, we, we all understand that fear is essentially an mo- emotional response. Then what we really need then and this is what Tim Keller says, is an emotional wealth. We would need a deep emotional assurance that overflows and drowns out the fear. Picture a well as your heart. When peering through it, it's deep, it's black, and it's dark. Just like where the fears of our hearts lay. And you will need a soul satisfying, something, like I said, that would reach down to the deepest core of you. A spring of love to rush up through that well and to just overflow. When you can have that, when it so overflows that it drowns out that fear that you can start loving without being fearful of any punishment. But how do we get there? Let me go back to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. All right, how do we get there? For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been Perfected in love. Okay, I repeated the verse like three times. It's this. We no longer need to fear rejection, judgment. We no longer have to fear punishment. Because Jesus has become 
the punishment for, our, for us. He was the one that was rejected for us. You know, we, we all, you know, all the church people know, okay, God is omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing. Right? Then that means that if that's the case, then, you know, God, Jesus has seen us in all our darkness, in all our nakedness. He has seen us in our highs and our lows. He has seen us in our good and in our bad. He knows us in our every desire, our dreams. He knows us even in our shame, at our worst moments, our insecurities, and even the madness of our hearts. There's no getting, getting around it. He's already seen it. And yet, even in the ugliness, in all the sludge of our hearts, of ourselves, He has taken it on Himself. And Jesus died for all of that. So that we would know that even when we are exposed and naked before God, who is the one whose opinion matters the most, He was willing to die and did die for us so that you would know that He would embrace you just as you are. Just as you are. Some of us may be asking, okay, okay how do you know this? Right? Is there evidence to this? I mean, we can take a look at the disciples at the end, at the end of every gospel. You look at Mark 14. The ones who were closest to Jesus, who knew Jesus, who loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them. John, the writer of this, of this book, was even called the beloved disciple. The ones who were closest to him. Even in his very last hours, when he was praying at Gethsemane, he said, stay awake for me, please. And they fell asleep. Right before he was arrested. And then when he did get arrested, who were the ones that scattered and abandoned him? The very same disciples he loved. They rejected him. The very same people, Peter leading the charge saying, we'll never reject you. We will go and die for you. They scattered. Gone in a flash. And can you imagine? Did, did God's heart, did God's heart go through the ringer? Oh, yes, it did. And yet, even then, even then, willingly, lovingly, died for those disciples. So that not only them, so that we would understand a love, that we would know a love so rich, so powerful. A real love that takes you just as you are in all your brokenness and embraces you so that the Father can say, yes, you're my child. I love you. 
when we understand that, can we be radically changed? And I want to end with this story. There is a guy, I read this uh, Yahoo Sports article uh, named Jason Wright, and he was a special, he was a football player for the Arizona Cardinals. Nobody big. He did mostly special teams. Um, so he didn't get a lot of playing time. But he ended up quitting the NFL. He's doing, he's getting his MBA and he wants to start a, um, a program to help, um, I believe, troubled youth. Right? Not 100% sure. But anyways, in this story, um, we, the, uh, the journalist, um, talks about his relationship, him and his wife's relationship with a girl named Carissa. Now he met Carissa at a church. And she was a youth at the time, and his wife was kind of a youth leader. And they found out that Carissa was going to be homeless in a week. She had to move out of her apartment in a week. Little did they know that she'd actually already been homeless for like two weeks, and that her whole life, she'd actually been in the foster care system. And so, to love her, they decided, hey, we'll take her in. Yeah, we'll, we'll shelter her for a while. And, she, and they said, no strings attached. We'll shelter her. Now for Carissa, she was actually shocked. She didn't know what to do. Because she had never heard that before. No strings attached, really? Because all throughout her life, in, in, those, in those foster homes, foster care homes, she said that she had been verbally, physically, emotionally abused. And so for an adult to come to her that way, she was like, hmm, what angle are they trying to play on me? You know, she didn't know if they were going to touch her or, or do something to her. So here, you see, here, see, the, see the, the fear playing off? And at the very same time, Tiffany, when they did take her, Carissa in, she was actually fearful as well. She would actually lock her room and lock Carissa's room every night because she was like I don't know what this girl does I don't know who she is for as far as I know she may screw us over hear the fear both sides if they both caved into their fears the whole relationship would have went kaput but Jason Wright and his wife are actually you know from the looks of the story like very I mean, they're Christians to the T. Right? And they got over those initial fears and they got to know her. And they found out all this stuff about her. That Carissa had gone through the foster care system. That actually she prostituted herself because she had no money a couple of times. And so here the story goes. Initially the rights didn't give Carissa a key or provide her the security code to their home. I'm just not a really trusting person, Tiffany says. I feel anyone would have the usual reservations about, can we really trust this person? What if she screws us over? I locked my bedroom door at night. Quickly, though, the rites discovered Carissa's story and slowly trusted her. They recited scriptures to reinforce God's view of her. Carissa says she appreciates that the rites never judged her. Ah, there we go. But Carissa needed some nudging. With the rites pushing her to fulfill her household chores, they were the first people in my life that I, act, that I felt actually loved me, Carissa says. They were my big brother and sister. 
But they're pretty much the only parent figures I've ever had. People who actually wanted me. That put me at ease. Then Carissa flourished. Before she lived with them, Carissa had graduated from high school. But the Wrights encouraged her to continue her education, helping her enroll at Mesa Community College and driving her to and from classes every day. The Wrights also paid her tuition. But in June, after a year of providing Carissa a home, the Wrights had to move again, this time to Chicago's South Side. Carissa would never would need to find another place to live, but she was repeatedly assured she was always a part of their lives. Now, I want you guys to hear this part. I was scared I would screw up and they would abandon me. That was my fear. For a lot of the time, I was with them, Carissa said. But every time I voiced my concern, they always told me that I was family and families stick together. They never faltered on that. Before the Wrights left town, Jason and Tiffany purchased Carissa a green 99 Honda Accord. I love it, Carissa proudly said. She's completed more than a year of classes and Carissa is debating whether to transfer to Arizona State University or another school for a completely fresh start. But she knows that the Wrights will always be there for her. She's joined them at Jason's parents' home for Christmas and frequently receives pictures of her baby sister, Gabrielle. When they hear of Carissa's comments, both Jason and Tiffany are nearly moved to tears. Hey, besides wanting to cry, I have to say that while we've obviously been a blessing to her, she's been as much of a blessing to us. And I'm not saying that in a superficial way, Tiffany says. Carissa is such an amazing young woman, and I can't imagine not having her in my family. And Jason, I just say glory to God. There's no doubt he's working through us. Because we're not that great. brothers and sisters to stick your neck out there yeah you are you are you're being vulnerable but the world we ourselves need to be loved happened jason and tiffany did it for this girl carissa right it doesn't stem from their own ability to love but I really believe it's because, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Let that sink in for a little bit. There's no fear because Christ has taken the punishment. There's no fear because he has seen you in your nakedness and still loves you. He's taken away judgment from you. Brothers and sisters, let's love one another as Christ loved us. Let's pray. Father, uh, even in our love, we are broken. We have an awful hard time of showing the love that you showed, Lord. But we thank you. We thank you even in the midst of that, that you would still love us, that you would still call us our children. And I pray, Lord, may that wash over. May that, may that be the well, the, the spring of, of, of love that overflows in our hearts so that it will drown out any 
insecurities we may have about being rejected or being punished or being judged, O oh Lord, because we have our confidence in you. And so, Lord, compel us. Compel us to love others, Lord, as you did for us. In Jesus' name I pray.